Well, we are in the uh, book of Nehemiah. We started last week. And um, what uh, we get to see here is um, a man of God who's a servant. He's a leader. God wants to use His people and He develops them. And uh, He wants to make us usable to Him. So as we look at the life of uh, Nehemiah, I think what we can get out of this is that there are many qualities of uh, service and leadership that he has that can be very helpful. Uh, just kind of touching a little bit on what we did last week, there's really two broad sections in Nehemiah. You have actually the, the rebuilding of the walls, and then you have the rebuilding of the people. And so in the first half of, of Nehemiah, the first seven chapters, that's that's the wall being rebuilt. And he rebuilds the people from there on. Um, Nehemiah, at this time, um, when we first see him, he is um, serving the king, uh, the, the Persians, the Medes. And he arrived in Jerusalem in 444 B.C., somewhere in that area. And that was about 13 years after Ezra had already gone from um, Babylon to um, the back to the homeland. And so, 13 years later, there you have Nehemiah coming there to rebuild the walls of the city. Been a lot of opposition against him. There's going to be all the way through, but God has given him a vision, and He wants to instill that vision into. God's people, the remnant there, to rebuild the walls. And despite all the, um, I guess, the barrage of opposition and the hurdles that came his way and their way, they finished that task in 52 days. A rather uh, lengthy wall. Now, the temple had been rebuilt. And that temple wasn't like what it was in Solomon's time, all the glory that it was. But uh, at least they had something there. But the rest of the place, uh, walls and, and such, were just uh, just in ravish, ruins. Uh, they were absolutely defenseless against uh, some of the enemies that were around there. And in Ezra, we know, <coughs> boy, <coughs> there's stuff that just keeps coming up. <laughs> when, uh, when you look at Ezra, there's an attempt at rebuilding the walls at that time. And uh, that was a few years before Nehemiah. And so whenever those things uh, were going up, the Samaritans, the, the pagan residents of that area, they came in there and they complained and uh, they caused all sorts of havoc. And Artaxerxes, who's the king back in uh, Persia, you can think of Iran, Iraq, you know, in that area, he issued a, a decree to stop the project then. That's it. You know, it's causing too much trouble, the enemies, all the force of arms that they have. So it stopped at that time. And so this is where the story of Nehemiah comes in. And it's about November, December, 444 B.C., 445, something like that. He's serving as a cupbearer to Artaxerxes. And Artaxerxes has a winter place to live, the Winter Palace in Susa. And um, this is whenever um, Nehemiah had his brother and some of his companions and some friends go back. They had they'd already been in the, in the homeland. Now they come back and tell Nehemiah what, what it is, what, uh, what's going on there. And he really wants to know what's the condition. It's, it's bad. They give him graphic, first-hand description. And he's just uh, blown away by it. Uh, this, this whole thing that, uh, that went, it just devastated and this is where you see in verse 4, he sat down and wept and mourned for days, was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And this is where things start developing here now. Shocking news. He wasn't expecting it to be this bad. Well, hello. Glad to see you on a Tuesday night. You are welcome here. We are in Nehemiah. And we just started last week on our study, and that was an introduction, and we're basically going to be starting in, in uh, well, we just kind of read verse 4 there. Um, but the shocking news is brought back to Nehemiah. Um, he goes to his knees in prayer for months. It's not like he immediately then goes to the king and says, Hey, listen, i got to get out of here. Let me go. I need to go rebuild the walls back in Jerusalem. 
He doesn't say that. Uh, this is like in November, December. It's going to be about four months of praying before anything happens uh, in, in that sense. But there's a lot happening. God is uh, really working this out. Um, and so during that period, he realized that the Lord was putting him in a position as he consulted the Lord and he knows a little bit more about what God's purpose is, what God's will is. That's what everything's about, right? What, what's God, God doing here? What's, what's His purpose? How can we glorify Him here? So, even though He's working for a foreigner, a foreign king, His years of service that He had had with that pagan king and that pagan nation, God is using. And what a great training grounds for Him. It wasn't wasted, was it? So even when things looked terrible, it looked like on the, on the opposite side, um, and, and in his sense, it didn't really look that bad because look where he lived. Can you imagine the clothes that he wore, the food that he ate? I mean, he was in a great position. Um, it, it's amazing that he even wanted to leave from there. When you think about it, he had it made. And when you go back to Jerusalem, it's uh, not made there at all. But you know what? He believes in a sovereign Lord. And the sovereign Lord is shaping him preparing him. All you have to do is think about Moses. We talked about that last week. There, Forty years he was in the king's palace there and then uh, 40 years on the backside of the desert, right? As Audrey brought up there. Uh, you can think of what happened with Joseph, for instance. You know, 13 years in prison before he was put in the position that, that he had. And uh, you can go on and on and see how God has put people in positions that you think, what are they doing there? It looks like God's not even doing anything with them. Yes, He is. And it's never by accident where you're at, what you're doing. God knows full well. That's how much in control He is. He knows full well who you are, what you're doing, why you're doing it. And uh, if we're attentive to Him, we can really make this thing count. He's going to make it count anyway, isn't it? Um, the purpose of God's kingdom is a lot greater than this kingdom that he happens to be in, which is the number one nation in the world. Happens to be the, the Persians. <laughs> you think about that, that's incredible. Uh, I'm sure he picks up administrative abilities out of this, being the uh, right-hand man of the king. Uh, can you imagine all the insight that he gets? What a position God put him in. And so he's, he's being prepared to go to a place that, um, that needs him and to a people that need him really bad. Uh, don't ever despair if you happen to be in a place that seems to be disappointing and you don't understand where you're at at the time and, and why it is because God uh, ha- is in control of the, the vocations, uh, our place of residence, uh, whatever we do. He has you right exactly where he wants you. He's preparing. He has an appointed time that he's going to use you in another way too. But I think he understands. I think he's understanding God's will as he seeks God's will, as he's praying, and his time of action now is is getting ready to come. Uh, he waited patiently. He prayed. God moved in a huge way. Well, let's. Uh, Let's have a word of prayer. Bob, could you uh, lead us in prayer and save my voice for a few few minutes or a few seconds or whatever? Heavenly Father, thank you for this uh, time together and for uh, being able to break open your word and receive from it tonight. Uh, Your Holy Spirit, uh, lead us and uh, feed us tonight, Lord. And we just uh, enjoy this time of fellowship communion around your word at the feet of Jesus who is our, our Lord and teacher. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Do, um, oh, um, yeah, May has not one. Okay. Mm-hmm. We have May in May. I'm sorry. I couldn't, uh, I couldn't help but that. That's a good way to introduce uh, May in case you didn't know who May was. <laughs> M-A-E. Nice name. Okay, let's uh, let's start off. We're going to be uh, um, we 
kind of read verse 4 there. Uh, the one who God uses is going to have a burden for people. When he heard the bad news coming from his brother and some of the other guys that had scouted out the, the homeland in Jerusalem and brought back this news, here's his response. When I heard these words, I sat down, wept, and mourned for days. And I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And so there we go. This is where it really, really starts. When God wants to use someone, I can tell you the first thing he, that He's going to do is put a burden on your heart for whatever that is or whoever it is. Have you ever had a burden for the lost? Maybe a particular person, you know, a neighbor, a, a co-worker, a friend, somebody in, in the family. And God keeps putting that burden there. Well, we sometimes we're not as sensitive as this. This this weeping and mourning and the fasting and praying, you know. And I think there is something to that. Um, this is a heartfelt prayer, uh, and and a, a four month heartfelt prayer, isn't it? It just continued and continued on. But he had a burden, and like Eldon was talking about last week, we sometimes we we let those words just fly right on over as he wept and mourned. This is real. I mean, this is not some kind of a thing where he's just feeling it a little bit or he's putting on some kind of act. This is real passion that he has for the people. There's a burden there. And that's when we know that God is wanting to use us. He always wants to use us. Our problem is is we're just not attentive enough to understand where that's at. So, anyway... You cannot put it out of your mind. Have you ever been there? It, it's just there. God just keeps it in front of you. And that's kind of what He's done with the issue of prayer. All these Sundays, we've turned it into a series in the book of James, chapter 5, and we just have stayed with that. Uh, one where I thought it would be a week or two. And then we come into Nehemiah, and guess what you get hit with right off the bat? And that's the place where we are at our best, uh, because that's where we are humbled. And um, when you compare the date of chapter 1, verse 1, where it talks about um, it happened in the month Kislev in the 20th year, while I was in Susa, the capital, 20th year of uh, probably Artaxerxes. But he's saying it's Kislev. And in chapter 2, verse 1, where it says, and it came about in the month Nisan in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes. So, we're talking like four months of prayer. He hasn't said anything to Artaxerxes. But we discover here, he doesn't immediately rush in before the king. He waits on God. He prays. He prays. He waits. He's patient. Four months. Now, sometimes people can go four months, sometimes go four years. <laughs> and maybe even 40 years. You might be praying for a lost soul that long and maybe never have seen that happen yet. But you keep praying. Well, uh, this was definitely solid prayer. He waited on God. I want you to note three things about um, Nehemiah's burden here. First of all, we see that he, uh, he feels their need. He weeps. He mourns. Fasting and praying. You know, I mean, he really feels that. He saw the need. He feels it. He's burdened in his heart. Now, other Jews might have been in Babylon and they heard the same news and they go, oh, wow, that's that's terrible news. That's just too bad. What a tragedy. And then move on. And I think we can often do that or I can do that. And, you know, I, I you know, it's like, wow, I, yeah, I, uh, I really am. But I might forget about it. Time goes on and boom, it just it escapes my mind. And I'm not really burdened by it. Well, should be. Um, most of the other people probably weren't burdened like he was, but he felt their need. He weeps. And it says he, he did it for days, constantly there. Uh, in Matthew 9, we get uh, some words that come from our Lord. In uh, Matthew 9, verse 36. Jesus has gone through all the cities and villages. 
teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. He, he does what Jesus does. Seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because, why? They were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, the workers are few. <clears throat> Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Feels compassion. <coughs> this is the uh, same kind of thought that uh, we see with Nehemiah. Real, heartfelt compassion. They're distressed. They're dispirited. Sheep without a shepherd. They're lost in their sin. So he really feels for that. He, you know, he wept over Jerusalem. You know, right? So Jesus had that, and that was the man that was in him. As he was God, he was also man. He he felt some of the same things that we feel. Reminds me of Paul's uh, mm. appeals to all the churches that he was addressing in letters. You know how he was so uh, you know connected to them and praying for them all the time. You know had the burden for them. So very troubled by them at times and mm-hmm. agitated, you know. Well, he was willing to get for salvation if they could receive it, if it's all possible. In his burden that he had for the Jewish people, he yeah. said at one, one point that he would, if it was possible, he would give up what he had for the Jews to have it. Right. Oh yeah. Definitely, if you give up your salvation for other people to receive it. Yeah. Well. Lord, give me the eyes of Jesus to see the needs of the people. Lord, give me the heart of Jesus, right? To feel that compassion. If I don't have that compassion, Lord, give it to me. Because I know that's what you would want me to do. And then, while that's happening, raise up uh, workers for the harvest, right? For these overwhelming needs. You don't have to look really hard in, in our situation that we live in today, where we live at, in our world, in our country. Our communities, right? And uh, the needs are overwhelming. It starts with the matter of sin. And of course, that's what he's going to get into when he gets into the heart of his prayer. Uh, so he wept, mourned, fasted, prayed. Um, if one doesn't feel burdened, let's say if we're, we're truly Christians, we don't feel burdened for the lost, for God's people, it probably means we've been so caught up with things in our own lives uh, maybe seeking the things that are of the world rather than seek ye first the what? the kingdom of God all these things we have to tell you whatever he has in mind and you know seek God's kingdom seek his righteousness and uh, God will, will bless that and we will feel burdened when we seek his kingdom we will see the way that Christ sees Anyway, we kind of fly over that weeping and mourning and fasting and praying, but uh, that is key to what the rest of the book is about. Uh, verse 5, uh, we continue in the prayer. Prayer really is going to go through the whole chapter, so that's, that's what we're doing this week. This Tuesday night, anyway. He begins his prayer addressing God. He really starts off with God, and that's what everything starts off with, doesn't it? That's the right position. We don't start. We don't run in there and start talking about our needs, but we come to this God. I beseech you, O Lord. That's that's His covenant name, Yahweh, Jehovah, Yahweh, God of heaven, the great and awesome God. There's there's our praise, right? The adoration. So He's addressing God in in that manner, and He knows He's a God who has promises. He he has people. He and and matter of fact he calls it your people. If we look right at the end of the prayer, look at this. Okay, you are God, you are Lord. Think about your people. It says in verse ten, they are your servants and what? Your people whom you redeem by your great power and by your strong hand. There's praise again. Getting a high view of God and that's where everything is always supposed to be placed a very high view of God 
And then he says in 11, O Lord, I beseech you, may your ears be attentive to the prayer of your servant and the prayer of your servants who delight to revere your name. Nehemiah loves to bring up God's name and His holiness and great awesomeness of who He is. Who delight to revere your name. They take pleasure. Make your servant successful today. Grant him compassion. So he says, your servant. Hey, Havel, how are we doing? Hey, you, you got a guest. All right. <laughs> I bet you your guest is sleeping. No, she's pretty much oh, She's awake. We need to take time out for a moment because this doesn't happen very often. <laughs> is it right, Frida? Is it? Uh, uh, ah, her eyes are open. We saw it. <laughs> she's starting to look like. <laughs> hey, that's great. We know she's alive. <laughs> uh, she's starting to look like her sister. <laughs> I think lingering back there, I think I saw a shot of Ashton, and then she went after somebody there. Hey, hey, hey Jaden Ashton. Great to see you guys. Good to see you. Okay. What do we have? Um, it's not our power. It's His power. It's your power, Lord. It's, it's You are the one that redeems them. So, what he does is he he has a confession here. Before he even confesses sin, look at the confession that he has. He confesses that he's God is Lord. He's God of heaven. He confesses the majesty of the Creator here. The God of heaven. Of course, the God of earth. Hallowed be the name of the Lord, right? We get the holiness of God here, I think, as we look at this. The Lord God of heaven. It's not a localized deity that He would be addressing here. And that's what they have. That's their God, right? That's what the Persians had. No, He dresses one that's much bigger, and they are not gods anyway. But that's the ones that they worship. And then He said, this is the God of heaven. This is the one true God, right? The great and awesome God who preserves the covenant and loving kindness of those who love Him and keep His commandments. So he, he confesses the majesty of the Creator. He confesses His greatness, the, the wonder, the, the awe. The, he, he's astonished by Him. The inspiring awe that He has of God. Never should stop, should it? God-fearing. God-fearing. Uh, he puts God way up here above everything. Not not self. He's not very he's not selfish here whenever he addresses God in this way. And then he uh confesses that he's the covenant God. Uh he's the majesty of the Creator, it's his, his greatness than the covenant God because he says in verse five, who preserves the covenant. That's the covenant that God had made with his people all along. By the way, the name Yahweh, whenever he says it, uh Lord, L O R D in the calves, uh, Tetragrammaton there is dealing with the nature of who God is. The, the I Am really is who that is. The self-existent one. And it also means the one who's covenanted with His people. And so that is the I Am. That's the Lord. That's Yahweh. So he confesses that He's a covenant-keeping God. He's a covenant-mercy God. Uh, and it's, it's the ones who keep His commandments, as He says here. Um, those who love Him and keep His commandments. You know what you have there? You have love and law. The royal law is what? Love God, love your neighbor. You do that, you've just obeyed the law in all of its capacities. <laughs> um, the covenant, it's right at the core of the people of Israel's faith. They have a creator God. He's unlimited in His power, even over Persians. <laughs> that's where they're at. He's the covenant God that's committed to Israel here. So He, so he, uh, he recognizes this God that has done this. He, he is right. He is praying exactly right. You know how? Because He knows the Word of God. <laughs> He's praying 
the Word of God. And in fact, much of this prayer here is Deuteronomy 30. Can't go wrong with that, can you? Okay, that's the second one. The one who God uses knows the great and awesome God. God uses the one that knows Him. Of course, He knows us first. And that's the reason we know Him. Right? So, who does He use? Number one, the one who has a burden for God's people. And then number two, the one who knows the great and awesome God. Um, Let's get into verse 6 and 7. This is where confessing sin comes in. After he praises God and adores Him, puts Him in His right position, then he sees himself and mankind in their position. Let your ear now be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant, which I am praying before you now, day and night. That's what he's been doing for four months. On behalf, he's interceding here, of the sons of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the sons of Israel, which we have sinned against you, I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, nor the statutes, nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. So here we have the heart of the prayer after we get the most important thing, God, here is man. Man has a problem. They definitely have a need. Their need is to see their sin and where they're at. And they need to repent, confess. He's assessing the problem and he quickly realized that the heart of the things was not a lack of organization. And I'm sure they really could use that back in Jerusalem. See, he's still, he's in Persia right now, Nehemiah is. But now he knows he's to go to Jerusalem. They don't have any kind of organization, but that's not the real root problem. And it's not because they have a lack of resources, which they do. They don't have the resources there. The project is going to require that. But the root problem is their sin. That's what he's really praying about. That To get it right on the head. You can't miss man's problem. God's holiness and man's sin. How can you proclaim a gospel to people without mentioning what? Sin. It's there everywhere. And you say, well, that's Old Testament God. We'll go into the book of Acts. Or go into John the Baptist. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What did Jesus say? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What did the apostles say in the book of Acts when they were filled with God's Holy Spirit? What must we do? Peter says, repent! That's the problem. How can you have a gospel when people don't know that they have bad news, but there is good news that can remedy that? What's that? Right. And it must be seen that they're in that sin. Now, would that be like an evangelist kind of job? Like, would you say anybody's job? The job of any Christian, just to kind of well, to start with, you're right. That's a, an evangelist, and there are there's there's a gift of evangelists, you know. And of course, that's people that that can plant churches, and that, I mean, they're just you know they they have a heart for that. But that is every Christian, right. and every Christian should have the heart of an evangelist. It may not be that right. same so kind of evangelist, the same to kind of to do that as a full time thing, or. Right, like you've been called to pastor. Right. But just, we're still servants. Matter of right. fact, that's what the, you're hitting right on the head because in, in Nehemiah here, even though we see this servant, he is an example of what we all should see ourselves as being, as being the servants of God, however way he puts us to do that. But what he did is he repented because he had to lose things. Because he recognized that he had sinned too. In the van of course, we still can yeah. identify well, right. with the people and, re- hey, you know, 
all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That, that's me. Uh, but you know there there is good news. Do you do you sense the feel of of your sin? You know, and and if they don't, then you then you preach the law to them, right? And uh, the law is what convicts. The law doesn't say. The law can only rip somebody apart and show them where they're really at, and then they're desperate. <laughs> yeah, and they might throw them at you, and then it's time to run. <laughs> The Bible is clear at the at the root of our global and personal problems is sin. Why are there wars? Why are there terrorist attacks? Sin. Why is there famine? Why is there disease? Why are governments and, and businesses uh, full of greed and full of uh, corruption? Sin, right? Uh, even the church uh, with its mission task that it has, it's so weak and we're not fulfilling what we should be doing. What's the problem? Sin. How about our personal level? You know, why do couples, just two people, have so much trouble of getting along with each other, who love each other? Sin. It pretty well explains it all. Why do kids who have been raised in a Christian home sometimes rebel against God? Why would that happen? Sin. And it goes back to the original sin, we think of Adam and Eve, but also it goes to the sins of the people directly. So, that's what he really hits with, and he goes right to it. If he avoids that, his prayer is not going to do anything. He's not going anywhere. He might as well just stay right there in Persia and just serve the Persian king. But that's not the case. He knows it. We have to address this issue. I'm taking it right to God. And uh, he, he will preach repentance when he gets into Jerusalem too. So that is the root problem. What is the root need then? What do they need to do? What, what's, what's the message? Repent. Uh, repent. Trust in God. All of this... Uh, and of course, when, when we're repenting, we're, we're talking to God and uh, we're realizing, oh, this is you, here's me, and here's your purpose. And we can live for our own purposes. And that's what the people were doing at that time, basically. Uh, people need repentance. Uh, Nehemiah has such a burden. His burden stemmed from the feeling that the people's great need was this repentance. And it focused on their great sin. So here comes a mediator. Sees the root need. Now, now he, he knows that there needs to be a mediator. Of course, the mediator ultimately is Jesus Christ. But here is uh, a mediator. As Moses was a mediator, as anybody who brings a gospel to the lost is a mediator between them and God now. You know, a go-between. And uh, he mediates for them. He, he is, he's praying for them and, and, and their sin and that they uh, there would be repentance involved there. Uh, they were unwilling to own up to their sin. Who likes to talk about their sin? Well, he confesses the sins corporately for, for the body, the, the, the people there. Um, but it's actually the ones who are going to be serving God, and He speaks like in a covenantal language all the through all the way through here. As He as He talks about Him being the the servant here, and um, the the problem, uh, you know, He talks about the commandments that they they didn't obey, and that's that's part of the uh, the covenant. But in Christ who is our mediator, fulfilled all the law. He loved God with all his heart. He never sinned. He couldn't. He was God, but he was still man. He loved the people, had compassion. So he confesses for them, and then we also see that he confesses with them. We have sinned against you. They had done some really bad things. Idolatry. All the wickedness that's going on in this world, 
That's what they were doing at that time in Israel. That's why God had to judge them. And they still weren't doing too good. Their hearts weren't doing that great even uh, 70, 80, 90, 100 years later. But he keeps this prayer focused on God, their sins, his sins, he includes himself. When Daniel prays and intercedes um, in Daniel, I think Daniel 9, you'll see where Daniel says, we have sinned against you. I never, and I know Daniel's a man, I know he sinned, but I never, ever see where Daniel sinned any place. Almost everybody else, you can you can see that. But in Daniel, we, we don't. Uh, quite the righteous man and God. We're all righteous in Christ, but um, he, living it outwardly, uh, it was obvious he was definitely blessed by God, humbled uh, before God. God gave uh, these guys mercy to do that. But That kind of gives evidence to their doctrinal understanding that um, of the depravity of man. They're in the same boat. <laughs> they're like we're in the same boat guys and so whenever they do pray and they say we that, that's also something I wanted to mention because I I was talking to a police officer there at work uh, about oh what he has to deal with at the school since he's a, a locate he sometimes gets positioned as a school you know, police officer and uh he really loves it, and he was telling me all of the junk and craziness and things that I could not uh, believe our kids are having to suffer, like because of of their families or their own, uh, you know, little sinner attitudes, you know. <laughs> and, uh, but, uh, anyways, I said well, it's our fault, you know. And he was like, well, it's not my fault. I said, no, it's our fault. And, uh, it's everyone, we're, we're, you know, America is just, I I put myself in in there too. And I I say, we're going to get what what we... That's right, we are a part of it. We're going to reap what we sow. So whenever we do pray... I think it's right for us to recognize that and to ask on behalf of people and on behalf of ourselves forgiveness, mercy. That's right. It's 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 very humbling when when we really see that that uh, yeah we are uh, a part of this nation even though things we like to be totally separate from from that it's this is. This is where this nation is at, where we've been at. The uh, back in the '60s, I think we were talking about this last week a little bit. You had uh, what was the hippie generation? They were saying don't trust anyone over 30 and that kind of thing, you know. And then they were also um, they were saying this is this is what our fathers have done. Basically, they were blaming it on right. the past generation. They weren't saying this is what we've done. Now that group of people is in my age group. These are the ones who are leading our nation. (laughs) And they won't be around much longer, but um, we're all in this together in that sense. But, you know, he's, he's, he's not glossing over the wickedness of the heart and the depravity of man. And regardless of whether we've done anything or not, the thing is, what do we deserve? So, um, look at Proverbs 28, verse 13. He who conceals his transgressions will not prosper. But he who confesses and forsakes them, you'll notice confess and forsake, will find compassion. I mean, that is some really good wisdom because we have to deal with this on a constant basis. And yeah, we battle with sin. But if we hide our sins, and it's awful easy to do that, 
you know, just kind of brush it under, uh, you know. Yeah, I know God knows, but I don't have to mention anything. Um, but we like to hide them. But he says, it won't prosper. It's kind of like what King David did. He, uh, mm. he took that man, he got him drunk so he could have his wife. And then God knew what he had done. He, of course, had to ask for God because he couldn't hide that from God because God had known because he had a vision that he that told him what he had done were wrong. He had a prophet come to him, Nathan. Yeah. Nathan. And he told him what he did. A year later. But it about ate him up, didn't it? Physically, mentally, spiritually, in every aspect. And yeah, that's what it did. And and so he wasn't prospering. But when he confessed, and of course we see it in uh, Psalm uh, what, 32, 51, it is definitely seen there. Yeah, well, see, he he didn't he didn't he didn't go to war at that time, and of course, uh, res, results uh, happen, consequences happen, and um, of course, um, then God blessed after that, uh, and there was compassion. And of course, he was a man after God's own heart, and we've, we've talked about that many times. But uh, yeah, David David sinned too, though, didn't he? <laughs> And, uh, but he, when he finally brought it forth, right. that was that's, that's what God wants us to do. That means to agree with. Right, and that's a good example of like what just kind of goes on inside of us when we sin. With the sins that we do, we don't confess. Like there's the whole guilt, and then with the guilt comes like shame, and then it comes in like the other thoughts of Satan when he comes in and tells you that you're forgiven. There's not going to be nobody's going to accept you for this. You're totally alone. You know, you're the only one who's ever done this before. You should be so ashamed. And it's like, in a way, it's kind of like, I should be ashamed. But, you know, but that should turn to God and be like, I'm ashamed. Instead of letting Satan continue to tell us we're ashamed. No hope of forgiveness. Exactly. Isn't it good to know that we are forgiven? And all he wants to do is for us to come there and mean it, uh, too, as, as the proverb there said, you know, he to act upon that. Right. The, that Proverbs 28.13 concealing transgressions will not prosper he who confesses and forsakes and find confession. It made me think of First First John 1.8. If we say that we have no sin we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. It's like concealing sin. If we confess our sins he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There we go. So, how often is it mentioned? <laughs> it, and if we hold it in, like like Bill's saying, it, it's not healthy for us spiritually, physically, I think mentally. That's where a lot of the fighting comes in that you were mentioning earlier. Like, why is why are parents and kids not getting along? It's because of sin, because of sin. They're not repenting of it. And it's just staying inside of them and just growing like, older and stronger. And to think it can be nipped in the bud. Confessing. Right. Repenting. Okay, well, we go to the fourth one. Um, the one who God uses as a vision for God's purpose. God has a purpose. Nehemiah sees that. And uh, this is this is why he's been so serious about this all along. He uh, starts off with the word to God, Remember. <laughs> No, God wants us to remember, right? Remember Him. Remember the word which you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. Did He do it? Sure did. He promised it. He, and he, all at the same time, He gave them warning after warning after warning after warning for hundreds of years. Sent the prophets. That was the problem. They didn't really love God. So they really didn't obey God. If you really love God, you will obey His commandments. Because And the two go work hand in hand. It's not a burden. Matter of fact, it's a good thing. Remember the Lord, what you commanded your servant Moses saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But, if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, 
Though those of you who have been scattered were in the most remote part of the heavens, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place where I have chosen to cause my name to dwell. Um, he did bring those people back. They didn't have a whole lot to go to. A little bitty temple. It's not like what it used to be. And, of course, the walls have been built. You know, it's like just starting over again. But he brought them back. A little bit at a time. There they were, a nation. He says, I'll scatter you. But, if you return to me, and of course, the only way they're going to return to him, since they're depraved people anyway, he's going to drive them to do that, isn't he? But yet, at the same time, they have the response to do that. How do you explain it? <laughs> the two do come together, though, don't they? The sovereignty of God, and then also at the same time, man's obedience is response. If you do them, been scattered, most part, most part of the heavens, I will gather them from there. Just scattered everywhere. And he says, they're the ones uh, whom he's chosen and where he's chosen to place them. My name to dwell there. If Nehemiah had lacked a vision of God's purpose, when he had heard about the conditions in Jerusalem, he hadn't been there yet, he's gotten the bad news. If he lacked that vision about what God has in mind to do, why be bothered about Jerusalem at all? There's why. What's what's the big deal? We live in Babylon now, you know, and we've lived here for over a hundred years. Of course, Babylon has moved and gone. The Medes and the Persians, they've conquered them. What's the big deal about Jerusalem anyway? It's nothing anymore. Why don't I just? I'm just going to settle here like I have been. I'll worship God, and and we'll just be happy. Everybody's. Yeah. Nehemiah knew something about what God wanted to do. He knew the promise. He knew the Word of God. And that's where it starts. We can only pray right when we pray what the Word of God says. And so, it had mentioned that He would bring them back. That's what God wanted to do with His people. That's what we see in verse 9 there. I'll bring them to the place where I've chosen to cause my name to dwell. Is he, is he talking about Jesus Christ in a way right there? Um, here he'd be talking... What do you mean? Um, well, ultimately, I guess, you know, his name is, is seen. I mean, that's, that's, that's his son that will eventually be seen the most. That's the, that's the biggest glory that, it, that he puts here. It's... Everybody knows that this is Israel's God. And that's where they live. And of course, God shows Himself through the person of Christ. Okay, My name is uh, is like everything about uh, me. That's the idea of name. Uh, the very authority of who He is. What He's about. His nature. His character. Um, my other question is, uh, when Moses took the Israelites out of Egypt, Eventually, they scattered to be the twelve, right? The twelve tribes of Israel. Oh, okay, you're. Uh, I'm, I'm kind of going back here because I'm trying to go forward. Um, you, you you already have the twelve tribes. Okay, so they okay. All came together. Uh, if you go back in time, you'll see Abraham. Right. Okay, let's let's take that about two thousand BC. Okay. okay, and out of Abraham, he out of out of his loins right. then come Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, right? Out of Jacob's the twelve tribes by that time. Then Moses comes around. Let's say fifteen hundred, just around that off BC. Okay. And um, the twelve disciples, did they come from one from each tribe? Mm, or they just kind of not necessarily. No. Um, he, you know, he chose them uh, just for the fact that's who the ones they were going to be. Uh, um, I mean, could have done that. But, um, but they, you know, they were they were still uh, of of uh, the nation of Israel. Right. But, okay. Yeah, That's and of course, what what were long there about fifteen hundred years removed from Moses at that time. Right. But that, that's still the people of, of of Israel. Okay. Who he came to the Jewish people there, and of course Jesus being 
the Jew and his humanist. Um, what when we talk about this, we're talking about his name to dwell or his uh, his very purpose. He wants his glory to be seen there. Turn to Ephesians one, one of my favorite books in all the Bible, one of my favorite chapters in all the Bible, and uh, dealing with God's purpose, His plan, His sovereign grace, right? In Ephesians 1, 6, let's keep looking at this plan, His purpose to the praise of the glory of His grace which He freely bestowed us in the beloved. So there's talking about the glory. The glory of God. Uh, making His name famous uh, is the idea. It's all, and it's all involving His name, His glory. Look at verse 10 through 12. We could get this whole thing, but I've got to run out of time. With a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth, in Him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to His purpose, who works all things after the counsel of His will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of His glory. You notice His purpose, His will, His glory, right? It's it's all about what God has done. It's all about His glory, His purpose, and what He has in mind. Look in chapter 3, verses 8 through 11. To me, the very least of all saints, this is Paul writing, the very least of all the saints, this grace was given. Here's what I got to preach. It's the best message in all the world, in all the universe, ever in the history of this world and mankind. To preach to the Gentiles, what? The unfathomable riches of Christ. These are pregnant words just exploding. The unfathomable riches of Christ. And to bring to light something that had been in the darkness. People didn't understand. What is the administration of the mystery? Mystery is mysterion. It's something that had been hidden before and now is revealed. Which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things. That God. So that the manifold wisdom of God, get this, the manifold, multicolored, multivarieted, uh, um, variegated wisdom of God might now be made known, get this, through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which He carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, that's amazing. He has given us His plan that is now understood and it's being made known through us, through the church, the body of Christ. I mean, that's staggering. I mean, if this doesn't excite anybody, nothing will. What an assignment. <laughs> what an assignment. We have the absolute truth, the wisdom of God. Regardless of their response, right. we still have gotten God's 
manifold wisdom, His truth out. And man, I, I'll tell you, we, we, we have it. You, you, no matter, don't get down because they don't accept what you say. And they might later on. You know, may not even hear about it. But the thing is, when you talk about this manifold wisdom, I mean, uh, this is uh, this is unfathomable what all this is. But we know without any doubt whatsoever the wisdom of the ages, and it's and it's given to one body here on earth, Christ's body, the church. That's incredible. That's what we have. That's what we have to give away. Man, that's amazing. So he says, God, remember your promise. I know you said you were going to divide them up, split them out, send them out, but I also know that you said that you'll bring them back. And so remember the word which you commanded about this exile situation. And he just prays through Deuteronomy 30, 10 verses there about God's justice and His mercy there, His judgment and His restoration. The promise is large, folks. This is more huge than we can even imagine. God who scattered them is going to gather them and Nehemiah is going to have a lot to do with it. And, and Yahweh promised this. God promised this in Jeremiah 31. That's a covenant promise chapter in Jeremiah 31, 10 and 28. Uh, running out of time, but if you want to write that down, look at it later. But Jeremiah 31 is a good one to go to about the covenant. God's promise. We get to get in on that covenant when He brings us to Christ. The Word of God, when we have the Word of God, it informs our praying. I think Nehemiah was informed by the Word of God. He was motivated by the Word of God. Our prayers are motivated because we're relying upon God's faithfulness and what He said. Many discouragement that people can have and they're weighed down. You know, they claim the promises. You ever heard of that? I claim this. I claim that car. That's mine. It's not yet, but it's going to be mine. You know, I claim that. The, the thing is, they're weighed down because they claim it and it doesn't happen. Discouraged. Why? It, it didn't belong to them. Now, it might be that maybe that's what God has in mind, but more often than not, it, you're not going to go around. He's not a genie, you know. As many as are the promises of God in Him, they are yes. Look in the Word of God, and man, you'll see promises after promises. If we pray that kind of prayer and have that kind of amen, uh, He specifically points to the promises that are ours that are in the Gospel and our union with Christ. Like Sunday service, uh, mentioned the prayers of the righteous man. Because when he prays, he's got to pray for the will of God. Mm-hmm. Not exactly. Right. So, you know, God will obviously know what he wants, what he needs, so he's going to answer it. He's praying as a righteous man. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. He also, tell, but he also tells us that he will provide for us and he will take care of us. Mm-hmm. He doesn't say by with what means or how, but it will, he will do that. That's his promise. Yeah, he does. Yeah. It's simple, but it's very complex. That's right. Well, he wants to take and show his glory. He uses prayers as a means for his glory to be seen. He wants to display the riches of his glorious grace he wants to put it on display, his manifold wisdom. And he wants to do it through the church to the angelic host. God's chief purpose is what? To further his own glory. And that's what it's about. It's about his glory. But it's, listen to this, it's through the joy of salvation that his people experience in him. Here's Jonathan Edwards. Here's him wrapped up in uh, the glory of God and then dealing with the saints. The first thing is this, that the glory of God might be manifested in the universe. That's what God is most desiring. Whenever I say desire, it happens. <laughs> it will happen. It happens. It's always happened. That's number one. Second, is that my phone? <laughs> Christ ransomed people from all time, from all the nations, would rejoice in God and His glory, that they'd actually rejoice in that. 
the nations would rejoice in God above all things. Uh, God's glory and His people's joy in Him as they see His glory. And so therefore you have glory. And we're giving Him joy. I mean, when we're rejoicing, we're giving Him glory. God is most glorified when we are most satisfied in Him. Chief in the man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. So if He's glorified and we're really His, we are rejoicing, aren't we? And God is glorified. Deep things of God. He wants to do this. This is His aim. To display the value of His glory. And for His people to understand it. He is showing His glory all the time. In nature, you look at creation. It's amazing. Look at the mountains. Look at the oceans. Look at the trees. Springtime of the year. Flowers popping up. All sorts of different colors. All sorts of things happening. All through creation. Word of God is the revealed Word of God. But in creation, He reveals Himself. In uh, the babies. In a way. Oh, the babies. (laughs) Definitely. Definitely. Even more than all of that, right? What a joy it is. So, as we see His glory, we increase in our joy as we see more and more of that. The unbeliever does not know that that's God's glory. They can, they can say, they can bask in the sun and enjoy it and this is a great day, this is awesome. But they're not really recognizing that it's coming from God. But we know where it comes from. The more we know Him and what He's revealing as He's displaying His value, not just in nature, but all of a sudden we see all those other little things now become huge. The spiritual things now we're attentive to and things come alive. The value of His glory. He's putting on exhibit His glory all the time. Uh, Something to get excited about. So, He has a purpose to magnify His name, His glory, to His people. That's who He wants. Matter of fact, John 17, what does it say about Lord that they will see my glory. Right? That will see His glory. So it appeals to God's covenant, appeals to the very basis of the righteousness of Christ on our behalf. You got about two more minutes? Yeah. Okay, thanks. Actually, on the internet, it actually says till 8.15. I actually thought this is going to be a short night because my voice is bad and I pity you guys having to listen to this voice. I can't stand it myself. Huh? It is. It's a different person. This is my brother up here. Okay. The last one is verse 11. Um... Lord, I beseech you, may your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant, the prayer of your servants who delight to revere your name. That's, that's Those are true worshipers. Those are believers. They delight in glorifying, worshiping God. And make your servant successful today. I think it's in a little bit of Nehemiah in there now, doesn't he? And grant him compassion before this man mainly is get me away to Jerusalem that's the idea well, what's going on here Nehemiah he's a cupbearer. you say well a servant um, his responsibility was to choose and taste the wine before it was ever served to the king which means you could die <laughs> if it's poison um, but if he is he's put in quite a position he would be a handsome man He'd be well trained in all the court etiquettes. He would have. He would be a friendly companion to the king, and he would lend an ear, listening to the king. And there might be times when the king might be listening to him. He had the closest access to the king of the empire. The closest access of anybody in the world. That's where God put him. Funny how God always puts it. The greatest people in those positions. Isn't that amazing? God knew what he's... And he was training him to really be able to administer all what he's learned here to take it to Jerusalem. God is something, isn't he? Cupbearer. 
keeper of the royal signet. It even meant that. Maybe it took it to that point to administer. Uh, second to the king, he lived in the palace at Susa. And you know what? Excavations brought out this, that that place where he lived was with cedar, silver, ivory, gold. The walls were decorated with colored glazed bricks and they had uh, these designs on there where there, there were winged bulls. And you think of that of that time, you've probably seen those in the history books and such. Nehemiah would have eaten the very best food in the world. He wore the best clothes. He lived in the most comfortable quarters that anybody could ever live. What a cushy job. Wouldn't you love to be there and work that job? No, he ate the best food because he had to taste it for the king. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Now, when he hears about the distress that's on God's people and his name is being dishonored, he can't be happy in this cushy, great job. He's in luxurious surroundings. It's a sacrifice. It's a costly sacrifice. He's going to give up the palace to go to this run-down, burnt place, Jerusalem. A lot of hardships going to be there. A lot of hurdles. Everything's going to come against him. All the comforts that he has, they're gone. He can't be happy, though, if he stays where he's at. He has something to do. That's a servant, servant's heart. So he was over, he's, you know, and, and throughout the rest of this book, we're going to see him overcome obstacle after obstacle. And it's all for God's purpose. You saw the prayer. You see why he's doing it. He sees a high, holy, lifted up, great, awesome God who's majestic. And God has put him into service. Why wouldn't he be willing to give it all up? Thank you guys for coming out tonight. Thank you for putting up with my voice. But we'll pray that the Lord bless that anyway. It's His Word that counts anyway, right? Let's pray. Father, we thank You. You are certainly holy and awesome indeed. The majestic God. The covenant God. Thank You for the promises that You've given us. Help us to pray, to pray right that it would be your will, that it wouldn't be some little fetish that we have. And we know you care about us. We know there are things that you want to give us. And we must be sensitive to that. But we know that we are spoiled. We live in a luxurious society. The Lord, that we'd be willing to be the servant that Nehemiah set the example to be that wherever you call us to go it might be right next to our house might be a neighbor might be a co-worker whoever help us to be able to share the greatest news the greatest message that there ever has been on the face of this earth the glorious gospel all for your glory By your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.